Benjamins, baby. Uh huh, yeah. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where the intersection of finance, technology, and policy come together. And I'm your host, Chris Brummer. The future of finance is now. So as many of you may know, this week I had the opportunity to testify in front of the House of Representatives about Facebook's new digital asset, Libra. Is this voice familiar? My name is Chris Brummer, and I'm a law professor at Georgetown University Lawson. Now, it wasn't the first time I've been asked to lend my expertise, but make no mistake, the pressure is on. It's kind of like a pop quiz where anything can be asked, so you're totally at the mercy of your inquisitors, I mean, duly elected representatives. But seriously, it was a great session, and I was able uh, to at least share some of my own concerns about the cryptocurrency. The Libra white paper is peppered with big promises and few details, and the project involves risk to purchasers and at least potentially the financial system. Want more? Go to cspan.org, look up Brummer, and listen in. We'll be returning to this subject over the summer. And yes, in my testimony, I paraphrase Jay-Z. But for now, I want to bring up one of the topics that everyone was talking about during the hearings, mainly the problem of anti-money laundering. And it wasn't just the question that I received more than perhaps any other, but it was also the question asked of David Marcus, the co-creator of Facebook's Libra wallet. And it was asked and mentioned throughout the week, uh, really from everyone from Secretary of the Treasury Steven Mnuchin to President Donald Trump. As the president has said, Bitcoin is highly volatile and based on thin air. We are concerned about the speculative nature of Bitcoin and will make sure that the U.S. financial system is protected from fraud. Now, the reason why is because crime in a cryptocurrency ecosystem can move around as quickly as the financial technology itself, with different types of illicit activities taking root in different kinds of cryptocurrencies and digital assets. Now, part of the problem is due to the pseudonymity, and in some instances, near anonymity, enabled by uh, cryptocurrency blockchains. And this, in turn, has helped uh, proceeds from financial crime to disappear into a diffuse technological network. The hacking of exchanges is far and away the most costly type of crypto crime, with nearly $1 billion stolen in 2018 alone. But it's not just a cybersecurity problem. Hackers move fast and liquidate most of the money they've stolen within just months of an attack and create complex patterns of transactions to hide their activity. Tracking it can as a result be difficult, and governments around the world are imposing new kinds of rules and some of the key cryptocurrency infrastructures like digital wallets and exchanges are taking notice. Additionally, a whole new breed of data firms are rising up to help in uh, analyzing and breaking down and tracking the money. To talk about both of these developments, I have Jesse Spiro from Chain Analysis. We have with us today Jesse Spiro, the Global Head of Policy and Regulatory Affairs and overall fix-it guy for Chain Analysis. Jesse, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm excited to be here. I uh, really enjoyed your testimony the other day on Libra. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, And I am really looking forward to this conversation. You know, I think that 
One of the ways to sort of start off, particularly since this is a little bit challenging, a little bit more esoteric for a lot of our uh, listeners, is to walk us through uh, what is the relationship between cryptocurrencies and financial crime and, 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 and why was this and has this been such a, a big issue for policymakers? Sure. So I think the best way to start in answering that question is, is when you look into the history of, of cryptocurrencies and, and uh, how they've developed, you know, this was a new industry, it was a new technology, um, and it provides certain, provided certain features that are very attractive or would be very attractive to bad actors. So the pseudo-anonymity, the ability to move value, uh, particularly, is something to focus on. So for, for bad actors, you know, I come from a traditional background in, in financial crime and anti-money laundering and compliance. So bad actors, historically, if you look at the traditional financial services system, are always looking for vulnerabilities to exploit, right? For ways to move their money from point A to point B uh, and to circumvent whatever regulation or controls are in place. Uh, so... So this is the, the, the issue of, of, of the person with 100 unmarked dollar bills and, and, and absconds with it uh, in, in order to, to, to get away with the crime. Exactly. So gone are the days where somebody was able to go in with a suitcase full of cash and just send it from point A to point B. You know, we've seen as the result of, um, you know, many different things that have occurred over the last, I don't know, let's say at least 40 years that regulation and anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism, what we call as AML-CFT, these controls have continued to uh, improve and progress. And so as a result, uh, bad actors are taking more innovative approaches. When it comes to cryptocurrency, uh, again, as I said, because of the pseudo-anonymity, because initially, coupling that with the fact that initially, as this was a new industry, those controls and those compliance programs, what we call the programs that exist to mitigate illicit activity, may not have existed. So one of the challenges is that uh, ultimately individuals are operating in a peer-to-peer -peer network. And uh, as a peer-to-peer -peer network, it means that there may not necessarily be oversight at those points of contacts between individuals. So uh, without any kind of regulatory oversight, uh, there were lax or absent controls for anti-money laundering or even terrorist, uh, terrorism financing purposes. Yeah, so that's exactly right. And in fact, to your point, you know, peer-to-peer -peer is still a concern, even with the current controls and regulation in place and the emerging regulation, which we can get into, that's global, that has just been introduced. Peer-to-peer -to -peer transactions are still a particular problem. Okay, so so when we, in order to move into that particular uh, conversation, I think it's important to just tell us a little bit about what chain analysis as a, it's really a, a data firm, it's a data mm -hmm. tracking firm. What exactly uh, 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 do you guys do to track and to analyze the flow of cryptocurrencies in, in this uh, new economy? So that's a great question. So Chainalysis was born out of necessity. That's what we like to think. Uh, so in 2014, there was a very prominent case, the Mt. Gox case, where nice. hundreds of millions of dollars worth uh, of cryptocurrency was stolen. Um, as a result of that, our co-founders got together and determined that this couldn't stand. Uh, and began to execute on, you know, building out a way of effectively tracing those flows of funds and where that money had gone. And that was how Chainalysis was born. 
So since then, we've built out multiple you know, services and products essentially to track uh, cryptocurrencies, blockchain forensics, we call this. Um, so we do this in a couple of different ways, but the best way to describe this is that um, you know, we're able to uh, map out different parts of the blockchain uh, and we're able to identify entities in many cases by doing that. And when we're able to identify entities, then we're able to do what we call clustering. Um, and by clustering and then being able to make those connections because of the visibility of the blockchain, we're able to provide unprecedented insight into kind of the movement of these funds. Um, this is not always illicit, obviously, but when illicit activity has occurred or does occur, we're able to have that visibility. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, in terms of progress, what we've been able to do is in relation to compliance, uh, you know, one of the primary concerns is going to be what we call transaction monitoring. I think we can get more into that later. But effectively, for those that are trying to be compliant, um, being able to monitor transactions in relation to uh, the risk exposure that has occurred because we have all of that historical data. Um, it doesn't involve any PII, which is really interesting. PII? PII being uh, personally identifying information, which is something that is a major cause for concern in this space and when it comes to privacy, a major cause for concern anyways uh, at this point in time. But, you know, for us, we're still able to identify risks and, and we do that call uh, with something that we call know your transaction. Interesting. So ultimately, it's, it's a business and a service focused on providing more transparency for transactions, which really gets to the heart of AML rules, right? Um, uh, if anti-money laundering rules are designed uh, to impose obligations on different actors in financial transactions so that it's easier to identify what happens to money, particularly the proceeds from illicit activity. Um, going back to this question of, of cryptocurrencies and AML rules, how would you define or summarize the state of the rules relating to AML and cryptocurrencies? So it's a two-pronged question. Um, first, we can talk about it from a domestic perspective. Uh, you know, recently, Secretary Mnuchin put out some remarks, the president put out some remarks as well in relation to inherent risks that they see in this space, uh, and Secretary Mnuchin specifically called out FinCEN, FinCEN being the domestic regulatory arm here uh, that has advisory over this space. So oh, we're in the Treasury Department. Exactly, part of the Treasury Department. So when we're talking about FinCEN, FinCEN has actually been, I would say, on top of this since 2013, and most recently in June of this year, they put, a, put out updated guidance in relation to how they regulate cryptocurrencies. Uh, and they do a, a very good job uh, in relation to their investigations and uh, their ingestion and review and investigation of what we call suspicious activity reports, which many times are called uh, referred to as SARS. Internationally, they're uh, referred to as STRs, suspicious transaction reports. Um, so the, the missing component, I would say, thus far, is that while they have a lot of expertise in this space, we haven't really seen enforcement coming from FinCEN uh, in relation to illicit activity so, so, in the so industry. So just to jump in, so part of it then is how to apply on the domestic end, because we're still in that first prong here, how to apply rules uh, from the Bank Secrecy Act, really, 
uh, to financial transactions, and one of those obligations includes the the SARS, the Suspicious Activity Reports, mm-hmm. and those reports require reporting to the Treasury Department um, wherever transactions look suspicious and 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 usually exceed a certain amount of money, uh, and 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 FinCEN's been more involved. How how have they been more? more involved uh, when it comes to crypto. So here's a, a, a great uh, um, point that they, they recently executed on, which is that there's a program that's called the FinCEN Exchange. The FinCEN Exchange is where uh, they, they, Treasury and FinCEN uh, takes public and private sectors combined. They bring everyone together uh, in a setting and they discuss uh, emerging issues in the space. They discuss specifics in relation to filing, uh, and it's an open dialogue that really, I think, lends itself to a building out the partnerships and b assisting industry in identifying uh, what the treasury needs. C, it assists uh, uh, kind of law enforcement and the regulators in their collaboration as well. Uh, we were at the inaugural FinCEN exchange on, on virtual currencies, and that's one initiative that I think is, is really lending itself. Because they're able to identify specifically the kinds of information that they're looking for in reporting. Um, and then that also builds something that we call the culture of compliance that's very important, which is that uh, in relation to relationships, Regulators and and industry, financial services, um, need to have a good relationship, right? Um, and if if the regulators identify that the industry is taking what we call a risk-based approach, they're building out a culture of compliance, they're going to the regulators regularly with their concerns, with their reporting, um, they take that into account, meaning that if illicit activity does then occur uh, for that be it cryptocurrency exchange or financial services business, whatever it is, they're taking that into account. So it's the the see something, say something approach towards uh, crypto assets, that if you see something, uh, you should really do something about or at least say something. And if you save something, then we'll take that into account in terms of our response. Uh, But but you just can't um, uh, see something, say nothing. Exactly. Exactly. So, so um, uh, uh, that was the first one. So we have this this domestic reporting regime, and now I think you're about to get into the international stuff because it has to be yes. much more difficult because uh, our laws don't operate everywhere right. in in the world. So we're going to get into the international. I think this is really important because, in context, based on everything that's occurred with Libra uh, within the last week, a lot of these public statements, some of what we're seeing from the Senate, and what we're seeing from the Congress, uh, you know, there there is still. Um, many concerns in relation to illicit activity that's occurring in relation to cryptocurrencies. Uh, and some could potentially take that as meaning that there is it's just lawless. This is a Wild West ecosystem. So um, internationally, this is something that was also recognized previously. Uh, and there's a body that's called the Financial Action Task Force. It's also known as FATF. Um, it comprises oversight over uh, over 200 countries at present, I believe. Um, there's primary members, and then there's what's called FATF-style regional bodies, which are FSRBs. And FSRBs. FSRBs. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they set global standards, right? They call them recommendations uh, to then be applied by both the local regulators in all of these places 
and by industry in these places as well. Um, they've been doing this since at least 1989 uh, and, you know, consistently update and produce new standards for emerging risks that they're seeing in relation to, you know, terrorism financing or proliferation or whatever it may be, money service So at the, at, at the global level, you have these sort of uh, the kind of Jedi Council Galactic Senate kind of thing going on, right? And then they come up with these standards and then they go back to their home jurisdictions and they write their local laws in coordination or in response to to, to, to align right okay. and so to drive that point forward what they do is after they produce uh, uh, their their recommendations after this is produced then they conduct what are called mutual evaluations on countries and in these mutual evaluations they go in and they evaluate uh, how closely this country is adhering to these standards to these recommendations on the technical level and on the effectiveness level um, and there's a number of different ways that they do this, but uh, and they don't do this all within a year. So it's not a yearly process. However, in country, these countries conduct their own as well. Um, and so as a result, it really drives forward regulatory, global regulatory policy as it applies to anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism. Okay, well, well, right now, what you've broken down, it, I mean, what's the problem? I mean, if, if we have these these local rules, you know, that are cr creating this robust environment, you know, the, the, the say something, do something environment of the SARS, we have the International Galactic Senate of, <laughs> of, of, of FATF writing these international rules, everyone's going back to their home jurisdictions. All right, and then blockchain comes around, uh, presumably um, thinking uh, or, or responding to at least some of the U.S. rules. What's what's the issue? So um, right now, uh, there is one primary issue that uh, has been run into, and that is in relation to what's called Recommendation 16, which is uh, basically... Of FATF. Of FATF. Okay. Which is a recommendation that basically mirrors in domestically what we know here as the Bank Secrecy Act travel rule, uh, which is that for uh, transactions over a certain threshold. So here for the Bank Secrecy Act, it's three thousand U.S. dollars. The threshold is much lower. That's been set by the Financial Action Task Force by FATF in relation to Recommendation 16. Uh, it's a thousand. Um, but the point is that uh, to to adhere to to that regulation, information needs to be passed. It needs to travel in relation to identification between the sender and the receiver. And the issue that the industry is seeing there, also they're seeing it here domestically in relation to the travel rule, is that based on this technology, that that that's not possible to execute on. So so just to make this concrete, so I'm. I'm 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 passing along money to you, right? Um, and as I pass along money to you, you're supposed to be keeping very specific information about me, um, uh, uh, and I'm supposed to be keeping information, I guess, more importantly about you. The fact that I'm passing along this the this particular amount of money to you, and I have to to keep, uh, I guess, when you say that some of this personal identifying information, it would it'd be your name and 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 maybe your, your, your address or something. Yes, exactly. That's correct. So it's record keeping and it's transmission of that data. So domestically, this thing was launched primarily around uh, the potential problem in relation to sanctions evasion, right? Mm -hmm. And internationally, at that global level, what was raised at something called the Private Sector Consultative Forum that they hosted in Vienna that I was at this year, which again is public-private, wherein the Financial Action Task Force brought in the industry to discuss this regulation and 
some of these emerging pain points, this being the primary, is that uh, mitigating uh, 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 potential sanctions evasion can only occur if that information is identified in relation to, uh, you know, the PII. So, so how is that actually possible on, on a blockchain where you're not necessarily, I mean, many, many blockchains that are supporting most cryptocurrencies are not recording like your, your, your personal address or anything. I mean, you, you may have a well, public address right. uh, on the blockchain. You have some kind of on-chain identification um, in terms of your public keys or something, but, but that doesn't sound like exactly so, what regulators are kind of looking for. So you raise a very valid point. And even if, uh, you know, we, we are supportive of this initiative uh, to some extent in that our services are, again, able to map out and identify entities in many cases, but still that is a component and it's not uh, on 100% validation. So uh, to your point, it, it is, is uh, I'm not technical, so I can't go deeply into the technical, but one of the major and primary concerns that has been raised by the industry is that they cannot execute based on the technology. What in turn has been initiated by global regulators and by uh, FinCEN as well is the fact that something then needs to be developed. It needs to be, de it needs to be built. Uh, potentially you need to augment your, your systems in some form or fashion to meet this requirement because it is a requirement. It's, the last thing that I would add is in engaging regularly with FinCEN, you know, commonly what's cited by the IRS and others is specifically uh, a lack of adherence to the travel rule in relation to some of what they're seeing. And I think that going forward, you know, based on the uh, updated guidance that they just put out in June, that this is something that they're going to begin more actively and proactively enforcing than we have seen previously. Well, one of the things I, that I've noticed is that one of the approaches is that uh, uh, one of the approaches is going to really focus on those few for lack of a better word, centralized entities in the decentralized universe, right? So this would be um, exchanges and uh, wallets. Uh, why, how effective do you think that that, that is? Um, I, I know that there was a lot of talk about the, the on-ramps and the off-ramps uh, to a, a, a blockchain. And maybe you can sort of walk us through that sort of strategy for AML compliance. And then sort of maybe let us know well, what, what are the uh, weak points within the on-ramp and, on, and, and off-ramp uh, approach to AML compliance? Sure. I mean, that's a great question. So when they're talking about, uh, you know, on-ramps and off-ramps, and we heard this uh, in both of the hearings, um, what that means is that these, you know, in relation to this ecosystem, the best way that I can describe this in layman's terms is that once somebody gets in, Right. When somebody gets in and then they're able to interact basically at will to some degree, there can be some freezing actions and some things that can occur here. And we're seeing an emphasis being put on that more. Um, but the real choke points when it comes to anti-money laundering are going to be the on-ramps. So entry from fiat into crypto and the exit from crypto back into fiat. Right. And so because that's where apparently like, money is being put into a bank account exactly. at that point. Right. So exactly. it's getting back into the real world. And that's where you get your records again. Exactly. So we're still in a place where, you know, crypto adoption is such that you, you, you can't do that much with it. The bad actors still eventually want to have that fiat at the end of the day. Right. Um, although. 
to be fair, some are playing a very long game in, in holding the crypto, and who knows when that might occur. So, that's really interesting. So what you're saying is, is that, okay, if I go and I get proceeds from some kind of illicit crime, the, the normal thing that people would want to do, or you would imagine that they want to do is, okay, you can only spend this money, this, these cryptocurrencies, in o- only so many places. So... Uh, unless I can cash out of it and I get my hands on some euros and dollars and yen or whatever, right? But the second I do that, now I'm, I'm, people will be able to identify who I am because then we're back into the normal AML world. So some people are just, what, they're just sitting on the blockchain and just not doing anything with it? In some cases, we see them sitting for a matter of, of weeks or months. With a lot of money. Years. Oh, we're talking large volumes. Yeah, that's something that we've seen in relation to illicit proceeds. Um, but... Uh, I digress. Circling mm-hmm. back to the on-ramps and the, the off-ramps, if you will. So these are, that's, as I said, the nexus between, you know, the, the banks, if you will, the traditional financial services and these exchanges. The exchanges play a vital role here. And when we're talking about Libra, the local exchanges are also going to play a vital role when it comes to combating the illicit activity. And that regime, you know, may have to be expanded, but essentially it looks like what a traditional uh, AML compliance regime should look like. So having um, enhanced know your customer, what's known as KYC in the industry controls, uh, meaning doing kind of enhanced due diligence in relation to who that owner is, who that person that is attempting to access a lot on that exchange is. Um, Transaction monitoring, as I mentioned, is is imperative. This is something that's going to be very important because also it, it could be potentially a situation where they're trying to take cryptocurrency, access an exchange, and then eventually convert to fiat. So there's a case actually that that DOJ just just released a, a press release on yesterday, wherein there was a, a gentleman from Ohio that had been uh, a darknet market vendor on Silk Road. Um, the the large yes, uh, which uh, for those of you that don't know, although there's few people that probably don't, was at the time the biggest darknet market that existed. If if somebody was looking to obtain narcotics or weapons or a myriad of different uh, illicit things, they would go to Silk Road, and the primary method of payment in that ecosystem was Bitcoin. Uh, so he amassed a fortune in Bitcoin, uh, $19 million, I think, he had been sitting on. And what he attempted to do was he attempted to gain access in, and move that Bitcoin into a local exchange. Uh, and he claimed that he had mined that. Obviously, that was determined to uh, be false. Um, and, you know, now he has been arrested. And that's a laundering technique, right? That would be a laundering technique. So that's so where... So if you have the, those exchanges and that attention on those exchanges as, as choke points, it just makes it all the, the more difficult to be able to, 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 to launder the, uh, the, yes. the, 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 the money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's very interesting because I'm just thinking about it. It's almost like, you know, uh, bed bugs. <laughs> and that, that ultimately you have to make sure, you know, when you go to a hotel that you don't take them back home, right? You know, you have to make sure that... that uh, 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 whatever is it gets into your house is, is 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 clean, and if you can't, then once they're in your house, it's, they're almost impossible to get rid of. And I guess um, uh, sort of bad actors on um, uh, on certain infrastructures are are kind of like the 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 bed bugs of uh, of of financial crime. 
Um, I, I guess I'm going to uh, stop with just one sort of last uh, sort of line of, of, of questioning, and, and that had to do with, you know, looping things back um, to the international piece. Because from what I can understand right now, you can have AML, you have FATF issuing these larger rules. The larger rules uh, or body of rules seem to be focusing on, again, these uh, the on and off ramps into the system like, like exchanges and wallets. But not all, you know, even as, as broad as FATF is, not all jurisdictions are the same. They interpret these recommendations. After all, that's what they're called, recommendations in different kinds of ways, and they implement them differently, with some jurisdictions being much more stringent and other jurisdictions being much less stringent and some just not even implementing them at all. Um, so how, how cohesive and how uh, homogenized does the international AML environment have to be if the whole thing, because we're talking about things that are ultimately sold online via the internet, right? I mean, it's, it's, these are inherently global assets, cryptocurrencies. I mean, how, how coherent and cogent and homogenous does the global playing field have to be? And if it's not homogenous, what does this mean for how you go about regulating these actors? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And to your point, I think uh, global bodies have recognized that. And so while not technically binding, you have the G20 that is coming out formally. You have the U.S. government that's coming and the Treasury coming out formally saying this regulation is binding. To your point, we're talking about potential regulatory arbitrage, right, and adherence to this stuff. Right. Uh, there's a couple of, of points that I should make that will will kind of make more sense of this and why uh, we think that this is going to be driven globally on a more uniform fashion, which is that if countries don't adhere to uh, the FATF guidelines, they can be potentially put on what's called the gray or the black list for noncompliance, essentially. If that occurs, based on not only the FATF member countries, but also some of the observers, which are major international financial organizations uh, that are connected to this, or bodies, government bodies, I should say, um, if they are put on one of those lists, it severely impacts uh, many different factors of the economy in those countries. A good point of reference is Pakistan and the fear that you may have just heard about for them potentially being put on one of these lists in relation to uh, their lack of compliance for uh, mitigating terrorism financing. So everything from their you know, S&P and Moody's rating to their ability to obtain lending and loans, all this would be impacted, which we would expect to be a driver. Uh, the other potential concern is if countries don't adhere to this, the bad actors uh, the exchanges that don't want to be compliant, for example, are going to move their business there, right? And then a lot of illicit activity is going to be being, being facilitated through these places, which then will potentially put them on the list of high-risk jurisdictions or high-risk places. And that is something that is uh, staunchly fire, uh, followed excuse me, by traditional financial institutions, um, by governments. You know, this is something, obviously, that they try and stay on top of. So, uh, you know... Let's call that motivation, um, but it, it is potential. Uh, there is potential for that to happen. Certainly, in certain jurisdictions uh, that are really trying to embrace crypto, potentially, um, you know, with negative impact in relation to compliance, we could say. 
Well, thank you so very much. I guess we'll end it there with what a bright spot for blacklist or something like that. Uh, Jesse, I really do appreciate your time. This has been highly enlightening. Uh, listen, it's my pleasure. You know, what I would just end with is based on, uh, you know, what we're seeing based on my background, you know, a lot of negativity we've seen historically over the last however many years has been placed in relation to crypto, the potential risks that are involved. But, you know, if, if you're utilizing effective uh, regulatory regimes, if your organization has effective programs in place and they're using the right kinds of technologies, we think that this can more effectively mitigate financial crime. And, and, and make the environment cleaner. Exactly. And make the environment cleaner and the technology can thrive. So. Okay. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Well. There you have it. As cryptocurrencies proliferate, the way we regulate and monitor our financial system is changing. And companies like Chain Analysis are at the forefront of this change and will continue to meet with others who are part of this brave new world. As Congress continues to dig deeper into cryptocurrency and Facebook's Libra currency, you can bet we'll be all over the updates and implications. That's it for Fintech Beat. See you next time. I'm Chris Brummer. Thanks for listening. We want to hear from you. Feel free to email us at fintechbeat at cqrollcall.com or tweet to at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. Join us next time on Fintech Beat, produced by CQ Roll Call.